good scent gives birth to love and life. We foster passion to grow geniuses which lift humanity. And tailor technology to preserve liberty in balance with nature. Welcome, Welcome to Radical. Welcome to Radical, ladies and gents. I'm your host, Shane Hazel. Thank you guys for being here. Uh, very excited to bring you a guest tonight. One of my favorite uh, investigative journalists. He is also a producer, an editor. He has done so much. He's worked for places like CBS, Fox, uh, and has recently launched his own media company called Sovereign Media. The one, the only, the great Ben Swan. Welcome to the show, brother. Man, I am so just jazzed out of my mind right now to have you on this show. I've been I've been a big fan for a lot of years. Um, and I, I tell you, you know, in a, in a world that has lost its damn mind, uh, for a guy that stayed true to his principles and has been mm. on the cutting edge of a bunch of stories, maybe even let's say early. Um, I'm, I would say so. <laughs> it's like you can see uh, see the Matrix or something like that. But uh, welcome to Radical, Ben. Hey, Shane, so good to be on here, man. I, I'm excited after that intro. That was like. <laughs> That was like two minutes of just like lose your mind. It was awesome. I love it. You got to have a little bit of time for people yeah. to populate, come in here, do some fun stuff. Uh, we got a lot of people that are extremely glad to see that you are back. Your presence is in, in media at forefront asking extremely hard questions. But I like to tell stories. I like to get people involved in that character arc, you know, where people have come from, where they are, where they're going, what they've learned and all those things. You're a, you're a Texas kid, man. You're just a little older than I am. Um, how did you how did you get into this? Because you started in media in 1998. Like you were no kidding in front of the cameras in I believe it's Ohio, correct? Uh, by 1998, and uh, as a professional anchor. Well, no, no, no. Um, so I, I was in Ohio as an anchor, but I actually started in Texas. So okay. I'm from Texas, from El Paso, actually, which has been in the, the news a lot in the last 48 hours yeah. because of what's going on there. Um, and it's it's just incredible what's happening. Um, but started out from there and then wound up um, getting into TV back in 1998, actually as a news videographer mm. and editor at that point, and then uh, kind of worked my way up, became what you call bureau chief, uh, what they used to call a one-man band today they call them multimedia journalists it's all code for they pay you half as much to do twice the work uh, <laughs> did that for a few years and then eventually kind of worked my way to becoming a, a morning anchor then a primetime anchor in texas moved to ohio worked for fox there uh, and then came to um, atlanta where i worked for cbs yeah they, i mean and, and tell tell me about your upbringing because it's you know i think there was a lot of people that were very confused about you uh, as I think they are about people who are very liberty-minded. I think, you know, it's it's this left-right paradigm. It's Democrats, it's Republicans, there's a twist on something. And, I mean, I even saw, like, Sink Uger out there talking about, like, I don't know where Ben Swan comes from. And we'll get into that story here in a little bit. But, um, you know, when he's calling out the president of the United States for drone attacks and droning Americans overseas without trial, like I said, we'll get into that. But, like, how, how was your upbringing? How, you know, did you come up i mean it's texas but texas isn't all red it never has been it's there's been a lot of different cultures out there and i just try to get some of your backstory yeah well i i did 
uh, grow, well, I was born in Texas, but I actually was raised just across the state line in New Mexico. So my family moved there when I was three weeks old and we lived there my entire life. Uh, and it was literally, we were the first house once you crossed from Texas into New Mexico oh, wow. uh, on that on that state line, uh, in a little town called Canutillo. So it was this tiny little, tiny little place, which is still a tiny little place, by the way, it's never grown. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's right outside of El Paso. My family, you know, uh, we were homeschooled growing up. We were pretty weird. We were homeschooled before people were homeschooled. So we didn't know anybody else who was homeschooled. It was like a totally foreign, weird uh, kind of upbringing. Um, very independent minded in terms of the way our parents raised us to be independent minded. Um, and I think when you're homeschooled, you know, even today, people are pretty open minded if you're homeschooled because you just learn differently and, and you're, you're taught things differently. And the way you process information uh, isn't really a top down thing. And so I came up kind of in, in that setting. Of course, this is all pre-internet and, and pre-social yeah. media. So you're pretty isolated in that world. Um, and that's that's how we were raised. Um, and then, you know, the, my family, pretty conservative family. I would say I was pretty conservative. Um, I wouldn't even have called myself, you know, liberty-minded. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that I was, you know, by the time the the late 90s early 2000s had come along i would have said that i was a neocon i was yeah. very much like a pro-war you know after 9 11 let's kill them all and the god sort them out and that kind of mindset um and it took me about 10 years to, to until i moved to ohio and actually discovered a guy who was running for office in in 2012 named ron paul that i was covering and you know as a reporter, I I wasn't there to, to try to, you know, smear him as so many reporters were. I didn't know anything about him. I didn't care about him. He was a crazy old man who stood at the end of the stage who never got a chance to speak. Um, and because I covered him, along with every other candidate in Ohio, people started paying attention to me and saying, hey, this guy's actually talking about Ron Paul. Oh, my God. And I was like, I don't know who he is. But for me, there was a huge awakening that happened because mm-hmm. I didn't know who he was. And so when people paid attention that I was talking about him, I was like, well, why are they excited about this guy? What about him is interesting to him, to them? And started to actually learn about what he was talking about. And then was like, oh my God, like my mind blew up and it was a, a total complete 180 for me in terms of my view of the world and and everything. Like everything you, you, you started your show with, right? In the wars. Like yeah. I had never been pro in the wars. And then I, then I suddenly became like this, total you know isolation <laughs> yeah like, i just i just want to trade with people i, I mean you don't want to yeah. force and coerce them i just want to trade crazy idea well and i kind of want to stop killing everyone around the world right like, right it's not actually making the world better and the, so that was a crazy idea and this in the fed thing i didn't know anything about the fed and then started learning about monetary policy and and schools of monetary thought and austrian economics and hayek versus it's just, you know, you, you go through this process when you're red pill, right? And so for mm-hmm. me, my red pill time was really 2011, 2012. Um, well, I'd say it's still happening um, you, because I think when you when you hit a certain point, when you start to look at the world in a different way and you stop assuming things, right? Stop assuming you know anything and you actually try to just understand what's happening around yeah. you, you're, you know? People say, well, you're just a conspiracy theorist. Well, it's not that you're a conspiracy theorist. That's obviously that's a slur that's used against everybody. <laughs> CIA often. Yeah. yeah, CIA language for sure. But, but but then when you say that, conspiracy theory, yeah, that's the <laughs> CIA. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it, I think you get to that point, like you said, and you're, you get to a tipping point where you literally just are craving knowledge at this point because yeah. what you had learned was propaganda. It was debased. 
the fact that you were a homeschooler, like my kids are homeschooled now. I grew up next to homeschoolers right next door. And, and it was, it was a different time, but those kids were smart. They never stopped learning. Their days were shorter. They were smarter than we were. And it, it probably primed you, I imagine, to ask more questions, to learn faster, mm -hmm. to, and, and, and I don't know, maybe you can, you know, give a lot of the homeschoolers out there uh, this understanding is like, you know, for guys that were raised in the, the government indoctrination centers, right? The the, the yeah. government schools, there's a lot of pressure to fit in, especially when you're in a giant class and maybe a school with a lot of money. Did you maybe feel like um, that time where you're learning to adjust and really didn't care, or maybe you never cared about what other people thought? Um, was it maybe easier for you to make that transition? So I, I, I would say that for the most part, I, I, so it's, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, right? You don't care about what people think, but in order to not care about what other people think, you have to think highly of yourself, right? The, the person who's insecure about themselves cares what other people think because they think they're, you know, I'm nothing. And so why shouldn't I care what other people think? You admire other people. And so you want to emulate them and be like them. And so I think the advantage I had was this, in terms of education, when you're educated in this way, what happens is, is that you, you do not have to fall into the systems that are created in order to excel yeah. or in order to do well. Now, that's also a double-edged sword because on one hand, you say, well, now I'm a free thinker. I think differently. I, I act differently and I don't have to fit into the system. The negative is then you come out of school and you go into a workforce that is built exactly the same way as the education system is yeah. where you've got to do certain things a certain way and there's this process and corporate america is probably the worst about it right because corporate america you know it's it so much of it is not based on on ability on knowledge on on uh, merit right most of corporate america once you get into a, any kind of real corporation it's all about hierarchy it's all about how long you've been there and and who you're connected to and especially now even more so than it used to be you know, diversity and all these different things, right? They really have no bearing on whether or not you're actually talented. So I've never done well in the in a corporate setting, got into TV. And, and even in those settings, I really struggled because even though I would excel as a reporter and do well, because I have an incredible work ethic, I'm a little bit nuts, um, you know, because <laughs> I didn't go to public school and it was never officially called ADHD. Um, if that's a thing, then that's me, right? Yeah. Where my brain goes, my brain moves so fast. I've got a million things um, to do right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and and honestly, what helps me, and I would say this is one one way that we've actually harmed an entire generation, especially of boys in this country, is that for me, having never been medicated um, because of the way my brain works, like allowed me to excel, right? I can do 10 different things. And it, not only does it not tire me out or wear me out, yeah. it actually gives me energy, right? I, I do better. But what, what slows me down and makes me sluggish and, and, and causes me to get nothing done is having one thing to do can't do that right so i just find myself sinking and oh man this thing i gotta go find something else to do yeah but and so and so i think one thing we've done is we've taken all these guys uh because typically adhd right is is assigned to to boys more than just to girls in mm -hmm. terms of diagnoses um and so we medicate them and say hey you, you know you're you're too busy you move around too much you say too much you talk too fast always had those problems and so then they would say you know get them on these pills and so then oh what do they do? Yeah. Right? You've, you've taken away the ability of these young men to think the way they do. So for me, that was always a positive. The negative was you step into the world around you. And so you have this incredible work ethic. I remember at one point, I will not say his name and embarrass him. We're not friends, but um, I wouldn't do that to the <laughs> so I, was, 
I was working in New Mexico at the time. I was a bureau chief. It was my first gig reporting where I was like full-time reporting and I was sent out to, so El Paso, right, is this city on the border with Juarez. Most people probably know that, especially right now. Um, about 60 miles away in New Mexico is a, a town called Las Cruces, New Mexico, which is where New Mexico State University is located, right? And so El Paso, Las Cruces, Juarez, they're like a tri, a tri-state, tri-city mm-hmm. area, right? Um, even though, you know, Las Cruces is a little ways away, it's, and it's probably not even 60, that's probably not even fair. It's probably like, 30 miles away. It's not far at all. So anyways, um, but, but in the El Paso TV market, right, you, you would have, everything was focused on El Paso. And then I worked for the Fox station in in El Paso. And so they had a bureau in New Mexico, right? Mm -hmm. We were going to cover all of Southern New Mexico because that's technically our viewing area, even though Albuquerque gets credit in the DMAs for all of New Mexico. And so I was out there, you know, working and this is my first gig. And then I would just, I ran so hard every single day, working 12, 15 hours a day. I'm chasing down stories. I'm breaking stories. There's, there's a, a station that was the number one station in the market for decades. Right. And at one point I had two brothers who were working there, um, and <laughs> not, not, not on air. They were off air, right. Okay. But they were working there. Uh, one of them still does. So I'll, I'll be nice. But uh, so then I was, you know, over at this competing station and all of a sudden, like I'm breaking stories. I'm my challenge is I'm the bureau guy. Right. But I want to lead the newscast every night. And and so I had this stretch. I set a record for the number of nights in a row that I was able to lead the newscast because you go out and find great stories. Yeah. And my story deserves to lead. Right. Um, and you fight for this. And so it was just a challenge. It was so bad. The guy at the number one station who was in charge of this and had been there for years actually wound up having to take six weeks off for mental health because I just drove him into the ground, poor guy. Um, you know, sorry, but not sorry, right? I just right. kept going. So so that's always been my mentality. The, the, the negative of it is, is that when you do move that fast and you work that hard, there are many times corporate bosses who don't like yeah. that. No. They're uncomfortable with it. And so so I would say I've always run into that. In every, in every iteration of my career where I've had some corporate hierarchy, um, I wind up doing really well and they love me until we, we collide and then they hate me. And, and it all falls apart. <laughs> I don't really need you to do my job anymore. And yeah, no, I, I definitely understand that side of things. Uh, when, when you're a million miles a minute and you've got vision and you've got drive and you do gaming inside of your head, like it's just this yeah. process. And, and there's, and there's one thing I think that you tap into, uh, that maybe we should talk about a little bit is you work with such a passion. And it, it does, it really does. I talk about this all the time. Like passion creates genius and genius is what lifts humanity. Um, in media, uh, you've seen, I'm sure the gambit, especially as you've evolved over the years, um, when you attack this kind of stuff, the way you do with passion and you do get the pushback from corporate media, you know, what is, what is something you can tell those aspiring people out there that want to be, you know, in front of, I don't know, those type of people or in those type yeah. in front of the cameras in that kind of market, instead of doing what we're doing in terms mm-hmm. of just, you know, independent type of journalism, independent, you know, you know, interviews and whatever else. Sorry, I broke it. <laughs> I broke it. <laughs> you have to get out. That's yeah. the only answer. No, really. I mean, it, it, what's really interesting is, you know, in the last, and it's, that sounds so like, who does this guy think he is? But go back 10 years, right? And and 
right around 2010, 2011, 2012, right? News was starting to come onto YouTube, right? YouTube didn't really have a lot of news content yeah. uh, in, in, at that point, right? Um, and so I, I actually heard this a little off, but um, Mr. Beast was talking on Joe Rogan's podcast about his his development um, as a YouTuber. And one of the things he was talking about is, you know, he's talking about when he was 14. He was talking about 10 years ago. Yeah. So this is like 2012. And he's saying he's 14 and he's doing YouTube and nobody at the school even knows what YouTube is. Nobody even watches YouTube, right? And so that's that's a crazy thought. I got teenage sons now and that's the only thing they watch. They don't watch anything other than YouTube. Right? Their, yeah. entire, it's their entire uh, entertainment world. And so when you, you know, when we talk about these things, it's important to remember that just 10 years ago, YouTube was an entirely different beast than it is today, yeah. right? Um, and, the, and the stuff that was on there. So, you know, my first real breakthrough as a journalist was working in Fox, at Fox in Cincinnati, right? And, and, I, and I interviewed Obama during that stint. Um, I, I talked about Ron Paul. We were doing this thing called Reality Check, and we were talking about things like the Federal Reserve and where it came from and interviewing G. Edward Griffin on a local Fox station, right, talking about um, um, the creature from Jekyll Island, which no way has anyone <laughs> on local television ever done that before. Right? I don't think anybody in mainstream has ever done that before. <laughs> exactly. And what's crazy about it is, is I got to say, is um, when you think about it that way, right, it's one of two things. Either this guy is so intoxicated by the scent of his own perfume while he's doing these interviews that he just completely disregards the audience and thinks that nobody's as important as what I care about, right? Mm. Which is what my boss has thought. Or he's so genius that he's willing to talk about these things and all of a sudden you start building this rabid audience that says, oh my gosh, I can't believe that the news isn't just car crashes and house fires and mugshots, right? And there's something else on here. And so what wound up happening was, you know, as I, as I started to build this, our YouTube presence exploded. Yeah. We had people in 140 different countries watching clips from the, the Cincinnati station, the Fox station in Cincinnati. <laughs> it was crazy. So we, we did incredibly well with it and we were, we were growing it. And then, you know, I, I, I had so many clashes with my bosses and so many arguments and, and, and literally would be called into a conference room with 10 managers around a conference table and then just me. And they're all telling me why I'm wrong and why nobody, you know, is going to watch this and no one cares about this. But the numbers kept going up every single night, every single night, every single night. When I finally left that station for the first time in 15 years, they became the number one station because that my last month there was the month of May, which is a ratings period. Mm -hmm. You get the ratings two weeks after, which is the middle of June. I was gone as of May 31st. By June 15th, they found out they were the number one station wow. uh, in, in Cincinnati, right? They had moved from last to first in just 18 months that I had been there. Now, of course, they lost that position within the next three months. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they lost their ass that. The yeah. So, so the, when I when I say I broke the system, right? Then I came to, when I came to Atlanta, we did the same thing. We created this segment. They buried us um, in this this new segment at five fifty five p.m. in the afternoon yep. is when I was allowed to do my reality check segments. The problem was Facebook had just come out with Facebook Video, so we started putting it all on Facebook. But well, we did 150 million, 150 million video views of reality check on Facebook in one year in just 2016. Like, the thing was completely insane. It was so insane that we had we had uh, NGOs in Syria who were calling me out because I was saying, you guys are full of crap. There's no way there's a seven-year-old girl tweeting from Aleppo in perfect English right? when there's no power in the country. 
Right. And so when you call that stuff out and you have like these NGOs, why is this guy on TV? Why is he allowed to do this? So what I say, I say all of that to say this, that within the local system, everywhere I went, they had incredible success. The corporate bosses didn't care. Their overlords didn't care. They just said, get them off the air. And so because of that, there is actually a Ben Swan effect that has hit a lot of newsrooms where like they killed every semblance of these kinds of segments. Because I had a lot of anchors from across the country who would reach out to me at the time and said, I want to do what you're doing. I want to do it this way. I want to talk about these things. Their stations were trying to emulate this mm. same thing. And then when, when, you know, we just kept colliding, 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 we got to the point where all of a sudden, you know, station management across the country was like, we're not doing these kinds of segments. We're not talking about these things. So they killed a lot of it. I killed a lot of it. So I didn't mean to, it was not my intention to do so. But the good news is yeah. 10 years after all that, you know, I 2012 to 2022, 10 years later, you don't really need them, right? Look what you're doing. Yeah. You don't need those guys. They, they, Thomas Woods used to say that the gatekeepers are still there, but the walls fell down. Yeah. Right. So the mainstream media still thinks they're the gatekeepers to information. The walls did fall down. The problem is that the FBI ran and took it and started sending the walls back. <laughs> no shit. Oh, it's it's totally true. Uh, I, I, it is, I'm sure, somewhat um, crazy for a lot of the anchors that are maybe a little further on in their years to see how this has evolved. And I imagine a lot of what has come down in terms of oppression of stories and, and really how they're fed stories. And I imagine you could talk to that all day long. I do want to talk uh, real briefly because this is where I found you when you were doing a reality check and you went toe-to-toe with Barack Obama. And this was magic. It was the first time, you know, and I, you know, I was a Marine. Like it was one of the first times where I had seen somebody actually challenge the sitting president on what was happening overseas in a war zone. And that wasn't popular then yet. I mean, that was when Ron Paul was, you know, 2008. He's like, listen, you know, this is blowback. There's a reason why they hate us and it's not our damn freedom. This was not a popular move. And I think it was what, like 2010 or something where this happened. Um, take us through that because you, you really, really, you not only called them out, but you followed up and it was just a brilliant piece of uh, journalism. Well, I, I appreciate it. Um, it was, it was, I believe the toughest interview Barack Obama was ever given uh, by far, by (laughs) far. So I got to tell you, in order to tell you the story that I have to tell you a quick, the quick backstory to it, which is that (laughs) we got time right? (laughs) A week before all of that happened, right? I was, um, you know, anchoring in at the Fox in, in Cincinnati. Um, and we were growing like crazy and we had an enormous amount of, of, uh, attention on what we were doing as a station. Uh, we were growing like crazy because of this reality check segment. And so, um, Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan had just become the nominees, right? Um, for, and the, the convention hadn't happened, but they were going to, it was clear it was going to be the two of them. And so they were coming to Cincinnati and they called the Fox station and said, Hey, we're going to give you guys the first interview. Cause you know, Ohio is the spring swing state of swing states at the time. Not so much anymore, yeah. actually, but it was at the time it was to say, you, you got to have Ohio. And so everyone was coming there. And, um, so they had the opportunity. And so what they said was, listen, um, we, you know, want your station to do it. And, the news director at the time um, said, okay, we have the guy, it's going to be, you know, this anchor. And they said, well, we don't want him to do the interview. And he said, why not? And they said, well, because we, we, we know that he talks about Ron Paul a lot. And I was talking a lot about the delegate situation because remember during 2012, Ron Paul's strategy was not to win these races. It was to 
win the most delegates so that when they went to the convention, which is actually the way the system works, the delegates vote for you and you become the nominee, right? Yeah. And because Romney's people saw what he was doing, they started taking those because in, uh, I'm sure your viewers know this. So I'll just say, well, we, we've got a lot of new people. So Republicans and Democrats have come here to find something different. And so you might okay. want to explain this to so us. Maybe they don't, no, maybe they, they may not know. So when you <laughs> vote in a primary, right, Republican, especially Republican primaries, Republicans and Democrats as primaries, right, are private clubs. They yeah. are, they are not, um, controlled by the Federal Election Commission. The FEC has no say really in how primaries run. The FEC pays for the primaries. We as taxpayers pay for the primaries. Mm-hmm. But but the system is completely crooked because it's it's considered a private club. And because these Republicans and Democrats are private clubs, they, they can set their own rules for how they conduct their um, actual elections. So when you go vote in a primary, as with the general election, if you really want to break it down, you're not actually voting for a candidate. Yeah. What you're doing is you're going and you're voting, and that candidate, you know, wins essentially a straw poll. That's really what the election is, right? And then you have a convention in the state where delegates are then elected, and those delegates are the ones who then go as a contingency to the the national convention so when people see watch on tv and they say oh the republican national convention is happening the democratic national convention is happening you know what might happen there well we all know what's gonna happen but it's actually not a coordination (laughs) it's actually supposed to be a competition right because instead of going and being coordinated like a king you go and and have your delegates from all these different states who show up and they're supposed to actually debate each other discuss who the best candidate would be and then they decide at the convention they override the will of whoever votes in the primaries because what you do is you're supposed to be selecting a representative in this representative democracy representative government that we have um you choose representatives who then go to the convention and they decide because they're supposed to be the best and the brightest among us they're supposed to go and decide who is the best candidate to represent the party so ron paul's people understood all of this This is how it works so that what they were doing is they were going and crowding the the uh delegate conventions where they're voting for delegates and they're getting all of their people voted in as delegates that's the way the republican party does it well, when Mitt Romney's people figured out what was going on, they started going with the RNC and stripping those delegates who were elected. They were elected by the voters in the, the each of these state contests, yep. stripping them of, the, of their credentials and then giving them to people who were Mitt Romney supporters, right? Which is completely illegal. It's, it, it violates every rule in the Republican system, um, but that's what they were doing. So- when I was going to do this interview, they said, we know that this guy's been talking about this on TV, so we don't want him. And, and the news director, to his credit, said, hey, listen, it's got to be him. If it's if it's not him, we're not giving you guys the airtime, right? Uh, well, okay, okay, okay. But we'll set down some ground rules. Can't talk about delegates, cannot discuss delegates, because we're not talking about that. And number two, remember at the time in 2012, Paul Ryan had co-signed something called the Heartbeat Bill yeah. uh, with a Missouri congressman. And it was very, very controversial at the time. And so they said, and we, we're not going to talk about abortion because Paul Ryan's got nothing to do with it. Not talking about Mr. Case. So my news director sashays over to my desk and I'm sitting there and he says, hey, listen, I just got off the phone. You're getting this exclusive interview. First person in the country, you get an interview together. Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan, it'll be the first time they're interviewed. You get to do it. Here's the contingency. You can't um, discuss delegates. You can't discuss abortion. 
And I said, what do you mean I can't discuss those things? Yeah, he says, I told them that you wouldn't. And I said, why did you tell them that? Well, because that that was the that was the rule. And I said, well, it's not, it's not the rule for me. And I did not agree to it. <laughs> so he walked away Damn angry it. as usual, usually yeah. how he left me. Damn it, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> and so we go and um, get to this interview and sit down. And I remember the weirdest thing about the interview was walking in the room and there's this snaky looking guy with a, sitting on a, a sofa. So there, there are two stools they're sitting out here. And then where they would be facing, there's a sofa against the wall. And this guy sitting on the sofa looking at me as I came in, who the hell is this guy? And somebody says, oh, that guy's from the, the CFR. I'm like, oh, the Council on Foreign Relations? And they're like, yes. He was literally sitting in the room to give them cues on what to say during the interview. Whoa. So we sat down and did the interview with them. First question I asked was, let's talk about this abortion thing. And he hit him with the abortion question for Paul Ryan. And then the last question I asked before we ran out of time was, let's talk about delegates. So I hit him with both questions. Then during the week after that, did a series of inter, uh, of these reality check segments about their answers and basically eviscerated them for a week. Not because they're Republicans, but because they're, they're politicians who believe that they should be in the yeah. highest offices in the land. So you need, to, you need to take the questions and we need to, to evaluate you. A week after that interview, we get a call saying Obama's coming to Ohio and we'd like for this guy to interview him. So they were like, of course, yeah. So Because you're, you're obviously you're not a friend of the Republicans. So in their mind, you've got to be the friend of the Democrats. That, oh, my God. They're noise. so exactly. They're bots. Just exactly. binary bots. Oh, in my fact, God. When, when I get to the, the location where he, he gave his speech and Obama was there, he spoke. I got to hear his speech. He was a great, great yeah. uh, speaker, orator. I mean, just just tremendous. Right. Um, but it was listening to it. And then the, the head of his Ohio campaign comes over and she introduces herself and says, I want you to know, I'm the one who, who got you this interview. And I said, Oh, okay. Well, that was nice of you. And she says, yeah, you know, um, I saw your interview with Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan. And when you, you just destroyed those guys. And I watched it and I said, that's the guy I want. I was like, Oh, well, I'm surprised that you would want me to do the interview then. She says, why? And I said, well, because I was so hard on them. She's like, and this guy gives me like a wink. Yeah. Okay. And so then she says, you know, normally we ask for all of your questions in writing, but with you, I think we'll make an exception. And I was like, well, that was a big <laughs> <laughs> Yes. yes. <laughs> so went into this interview, five minutes with the president. Um, Obama was very famous for, for filibustering interviews, right? So you're yeah. lucky to get two questions because he could just talk, right? And really drag it out. And your five minute timer is running. And so then, you know. By the time you get done, it's like, I, I got to one question, maybe two. And that's, that's and he didn't give me anything on the question I asked. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's the way that they normally do it. I got seven questions in seven minutes. Spoken. I only got to ask five, but he answered two that I didn't ask because that was his prepared <laughs> script. And it ran for seven minutes because he was so mad by the time we got to the end of the interview, because the first question I asked him was, you know, you, you have a kill list. And how do you as a president, right, or any president justify having a kill list that has U.S. citizens on it, like, you know, Anwar Awalaki or his 16-year-old son, Abdul Rahman Awalaki, both U.S. citizens, both killed without due process, right? He had no answer to that. He just said, uh, well, um, you're talking about things that we haven't publicly stated. Well, let, true. let's slow down right here because this is super good. Ladies and gents, you, you, if you haven't seen it, go on YouTube and just Google Ben Swan, Barack Obama. It is 
awesome. There's a part where you're you're going through this and he starts to talk about kind of the drawdown in Afghanistan as like, oh, you know what, like what we're doing with these kill lists is actually helping to slow the death and slow the war and bring everybody home. And you're just like, oh, this is such bullshit. And then you say, well, actually, you're doing extrajudicial killings in Yemen, which isn't Afghanistan, which has we have never declared war on. And man, his face at that point, and I think he actually kind of like brings up his hand a little bit to like, you know, start pointing. And I was just like, oh, he's got him. He's got him right where he wants him. That takes a tremendous like there there are a lot of people that have trouble just speaking in public. If you would ask most people to talk to a president, to interview them, to actually come up with some really legitimate questions that are going to disturb him, to make them mad. I'm going to tell you right now, there are very few people that can do what you did in that moment, and it was glorious. Well, I, I again, I appreciate that. I, I do think it is difficult to do. It's difficult in a lot of ways. Um, one of the reasons it's difficult when you, when you are in that setting is, for me, the thing I was most nervous about is I'm not looking down at anything. So I'm just trying to remember my questions in my head. And I'm also trying to ask the questions in a nuanced enough way that you can't just slither out of them. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, one of the questions was about the National Defense Authorization Act, which allowed for the indefinite detention of American citizens. Yeah. Obama was a constitutional lawyer. It's like, so how do you justify this? You know, and why would you sign it when you said you weren't going to sign it if it was in there? And then you did. And they said, oh, well, but I went ahead and did it because we need to fund the military. Oh, okay. So you can put anything in there you want. It completely illegal stuff. Stuff that there's no way would stand up before the Supreme Court, but he keeps he keeps signing them. And the, and the thing with the extrajudicial killings of, of these guys in Yemen, and, and so important because, you know, we, we've seen this happen in a lot of cases, um, which is where you you have the the government comes in and says, here's a guy, he's a bad guy, he's in this location like Yemen, right? We're going to take him out. And so they kill him. Mm -hmm. But the people, but, but like what actual act of war did he commit? Anwar Awalaki, which is kind of interesting. By the way, I mentioned the, a, a town called Las Cruces. That's actually where he's from. So oh, his wow. father, yeah, this is a weird connection. Um, CIA, calm down. It's not like that. <laughs> uh, but, but so, so Las Cruces, um, Anwar Awalaki's father was a, professor and so he actually came to the country and Awalaki was born in Las Cruces New Mexico that's where he was actually hmm. born um, while his father was teaching at New Mexico State University he was raised there and then they moved to other places around the country um, so and he was a Muslim cleric who quite candidly right after 9-11 like the Bush administration brought this guy around and had him speak at different events and he was like this great example of a moderate Muslim the problem was that he became radicalized, and this is the thing that, that Ron Paul calls blowback, right? Yeah. He got radicalized because the U.S. decided they were going to start bombing locations in Yemen, where he's originally from. And and he was first offended by the fact that, that the FBI was planting listening devices inside of mosques across the country and, and running illegal surveillance on mosques, right? He should have been offended by that. He yeah. should have been upset by that. Yeah, 100%. Um, that was first. Then he sees what's happening in Yemen, which is where all these people are being being attacked. Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, right? AQAP. Yep. You know this very well, Shane. Was a nothing. It was a redneck militia, nothing organization. 
And then the, the, the U.S. goes there and starts bombing indiscriminately and you're killing wedding parties and you're killing kids at barbecues and you're, and you're destroying people's lives. And we had this incredible number of drone strikes happening between 2004 and 2012, specifically in Yemen. It actually existed until about 2016. Now it doesn't matter because the Saudis are doing all of our dirty work yep. in Yemen for us and killing everyone off there. But, but what we did, you could literally go back and trace the number of drone strikes to the growth of AQAP. By the time that Hillary Clinton is talking about how the greatest threat in terms of terrorism in the world, and I think she was talking about this in 2014, 2015, she's talking about the greatest threat um, is AQAP, right? AQAP didn't exist until we created them that's through drone strikes. That's exactly right, because what was al-Qaeda at that point had left to Afghanistan with uh, bin Laden and the bin Ladenites. Like, it was it was not a thing. And the fact that we were in such a poor, just awfully poor country doing things like this, oh, man, like, it. it in fact, we're still making sure that this continues today where kids are literally just shitting themselves to death. They don't have a new This, if if you guys are out there and you're watching, call your congressman, call your congresswomen, whatever, let them know that this is not all right. This needs to stop. But yeah, you're right. I mean, this was uh, not too long after Benghazi. This was when they were running all sorts of uh, stingers and everything else from Benghazi up to Syria. Um, And man, what a, what an interesting conversation to have that where you followed up and, you know, talk about the 16 year old son, just an amazing conversation. I want to, I want to get some of your takes uh, as we're, we're, we're just, we're blowing through an hour. No problem here. Um, on what happened when you broke the WikiLeaks uh, down here in Atlanta with CBS? I was yeah. like, damn, Ben has n- like knocked this one out of the park, covered your ass at the same time, and brought to light something that now we're looking back at going, oh my God, CBS, what the hell did you do to Ben Swan, who was actually bringing us something pretty legit? Well, so so here I'll, I'll do something for you right here, <laughs> L- live on your show. I'm gonna I'm gonna tweet this out. All right, all right. Pretty interesting. PizzaGate mm. sure did age better <laughs> than hashtag RussiaGate. Oh, we're, how, do, how do you do that little emoji that's thinking? Hmm, oh, yeah, it's in there somewhere. Here. I do this for you right here. We'll do it live on your show. And then I'm going to live tweets, man. Shane, Shane made me say it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Truth and reporting, right? So that, this all starts to unfold, ladies and gents. If you haven't seen this, also go out and watch it. You're going to have to find it uh, not on CBS and definitely, um, I think it's probably like a some type of ripped uh, video at this point because they took it down, but it got a ton of attention, an absolute ton of attention. Uh, maybe not some of the best attention in the world. The fact no. that you're pissing off the Clintons at that point Oh, man, walk walk me through this a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, what's interesting about this story, and I always tell people, you know, when they when they talk about the Pizzagate issue, like I never sought out to to cover it. I wasn't actually particularly interested in it. Um, I had a lot of people for several months before the report ever aired who were pushing me saying, you got to talk about this. You got to talk about this. You got to talk about this. And and they were, you know, 
sending me a lot of information. And I was just like, man, this, this is too messy. It doesn't make any sense. And I was working again for CBS at the time. And all of a sudden, um, the guy, there's a guy who goes into the Comet Ping Pong Pizza parlor with a gun. Yeah. Right. And I guess he shoots it up in the air or something, gets arrested. Nobody died. Then, Nobody killed. No. Yeah. He didn't, he didn't kill anyone. Um, but, you know, obviously the guy's disturbed. Right. A lot of people believe, think that he was he it was all set up anyways, whether it was or not. I don't know. It might not have been the guy just might have been nuts um, or had, you know, mental health issues or spent too much time on the Internet. Right. Looking at this stuff. And believing things that are that were not true, right? Believing that there were children being held in a basement of a pizza parlor, which was not true. So one of the things that I have come to learn since going through all this, and that was five years ago, mm -hmm. um, has been that there is a lot um, that I was even naive about um, going into it, including the whole concept, I think, of true disinformation. So what I have come to... Yeah. to fully believe, and I think I've been able to prove this in a lot of different cases, is that, you know, you have you have stuff on the internet that's just a lie. It's just it's just bogus. And then you have stuff out there that's true. And there's a lot of truth stuff out there. And then you have particular entities whose job it is to go online and to create nonsense, yep. right? When something is particularly uh, damaging to the people they work for. And so what they'll do is they'll just start creating like a, a, a complete, like. Well, it's a fabrication. It, it's right? yeah, it's it's a fabrication. Information. Yeah. It, well, it, but it's more than fabrication, right? It's it it sucks up all the energy, right? They're very good at this. <clears throat> very good at getting something to trend. Yeah. Getting something that's just completely wrong, but they they feed it and they push and they push and they push, and then all of a sudden you turn around and you're like, oh, well, this is totally nuts but people start to believe it oh have you seen this have you seen this have you seen this and you're like well wait the problem is when you do that right so you start saying things like hillary clinton's eating children and you might have some people out there who believe it. i don't believe it, right <laughs> never seen any evidence that she's yeah. a cannibal never seen evidence that she eats children she looks never like she's plants that, that she's a pedophile right that there's any pedophilia associated with her and there's many people who say what about the lady in haiti right i'm saying for her particularly in particular i've never seen evidence of that mm -hmm. however what happens is that so then you you begin to conflate. So what these these disinformation artists do is they start to conflate all this information so that you can't tell what's real and what's not. And mm -hmm. it's all such nonsense. So then people just tune out. Reasonable people tune out. And so a lot of folks had already tuned out. But but this this term Pizzagate was trending on Twitter. Twitter was trying to hold down this hashtag because it was getting so much attention. This guy goes into a pizza parlor. I'm working at CBS and we're covering the story in Atlanta from our studio. We're talking about the guy who went into the, the pizza parlor with the gun, the crazy people, crazy people, crazy people. And then we're talking about Hillary Clinton and we're saying Macedonian sheep farmers, because according to the Daily Beast, it was Macedonian sheep farmers, which why they would come up with those guys uh, who had managed to get a hold of like internet access to Facebook, who had started all of this and it all came from this. And so we were covering it and I was like, okay, I'm going to look into it then. because we're talking about this. And this just seems like nonsense, right? Your yeah. BS meters are like, whoa, there's no way this is real. So he started looking into it. And the first thing I found was what are you kidding? This isn't Macedonian sheep farmers. It came because John Podesta left his cell phone in a taxi. Somebody got it and gave it to WikiLeaks and WikiLeaks just dumped the contents of his emails onto 
the internet and said, read them for yourself. And then after that had happened, you had um, a bunch of pedophiles, at least that's what who they said they were. I don't know who they were. They said they were pedophiles on 4chan and 8chan who stood up and raised their hands and said, by the way, um, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but the stuff he's saying in these emails, that's the way we talk. Those are the terms we use. Now, does that mean that they're right? No. Does that mean that we, we can take them at their word? No, absolutely not. But as a journalist, then you can look at that and say, okay, well, that's what they're saying. So then what's the next step? Well, the next step is you say, let's verify if that's true or not. Mm-hmm. Are these terms like CP or cheese pizza, is that a term that it was is widely known in the industry? Yeah. Or yeah. Yeah. And so then you look that up and you find out, mm-hmm. I was able to find an a, a urban dictionary. Urban <laughs> dictionary had an entry from 2010. So seven years before they had a, an entry that said hmm. cheese pizza is a term used for child pornography used by pedophiles when they talk to each other as wow. language. right? That's, that's not made up. No, it's been on the, it was on the internet for seven years before this. So what you start to do is you start to take it as a, as a journalist and, and you're investigating this, you start to find these threads and say, well, what is true and what is not? And you, well, this is true. This is true. This is true. This is true. And what you find is that as you really dig into that story, which is in a completely insane story, I have not seen the story in years and now it's trending again. In fact, I was just on TikTok the other day and, and I heard my own voice. I was like, what the heck is this? And somebody had reposted the entire thing on TikTok. And so I, I hadn't seen it in years. So I watched it and I was like, damn. This is a weird story. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I had forgotten some of the things that were in it. Oh, that's super weird. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. And so what you find is that that the 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 story itself, right, was so bizarre. And there were so many things, Shane, that we oh. couldn't run on TV. There were so many. We couldn't show any pictures of anything. We couldn't share so much information. So we ran the story, um, you know. My bosses signed off on it all the way up to the very highest levels. They had signed off on it and they had said, yeah, yeah, you know, we're, we're in agreement with this story. Um, in fact, because it was around Christmas times, so it was, you know, almost yeah. five years to the day. Yeah. Uh, because of that, my news director was actually on vacation. So we actually held the story an extra two weeks till he came back. And by the time he came back, I was like, you know what? I think the story is getting a little old by now. So we, maybe we just don't run it. And he said, no, I think we should still run it. I think it's a solid story. Let's do it. So we ran it. And then everything was fine until the next day when the Daily Beast starts calling and saying, why would you run this? And the head of CBS Network is calling and saying, why are you guys running this on TV? And why is this guy allowed to be there? And then it all blew up from there. It was amazing to watch the fallout. And I will tell you, like, from a guy that's been behind the scenes and seen the craft and everything else that was going on with this whole thing, I watched this with such intrigue because when this guy went in and the reporting started to come out about what was actually happening, I was like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait. This actually could be a no kidding real story about pedophilia. This guy that has a pizza shop down here who has some connection to Podesta. And then you start to see what the people on the other side of this are talking about. So there's a like a, a, a shop down the street. Uh, it's like poetry and prose or something like that. And they hosted a meeting with Hillary Clinton after she lost the election. Um, and it was about her book, you know, what happened. And they, mm-hmm. you can tell, you know, certain mannerisms and body language and all this other kind of stuff where when Hillary Clinton especially is going to make a false statement or a lie and mm-hmm. she starts to like do some, you know, 
Hillary Clinton comedy, right? Like, mm-hmm. and kind of just, oh, Podesta, yeah, you know, he's still got some stuff there, and he's obviously Italian and Greek, and oh, there's not even a basement, and there's no pedos, and there's no children, and all. I'm going to tell you right now, from a guy that's seen this kind of stuff, this is like a controlled narrative, false flag type of moment. I'm not saying it was. Right. I'm saying the possibility where all this stuff was hitting the blotter and everything else out there for those guys was starting to blow up. They needed a moment to try to control a narrative. And so what do you do? You have a guy come in that nobody knows about from quote unquote North Carolina and nobody gets killed. He doesn't get killed. He's in DC with what, you know, what Hillary Clinton will tell you was an automatic weapon. And, you know, and then just kind of laughs it off as no, John Podesta is the greatest guy in the world. And since then we know that's yeah. not true they blamed a lot of it on russia at the time in terms of disinformation mm-hmm. while now we know because of the twitter files that are coming out that it was literally the fbi going out to twitter and the rest of you know apple google the, the rest of the giant tech companies and you're sitting there just like oh my god when you start to go back and you look at what they've been saying and what they did and what the possibilities of what everything was at the time that was one of those stories that I think when you start to really look back, man, is just defining and really just brave. I mean, the the brass balls that it takes to go out there and start talking about that kind of stuff with the relations of who the Podestas were in bed with, you know, whether it was Epstein, whether it was Bill Clinton, whether it was Hillary right. Clinton, all these people, the DNC, you know, you know, murder machine that's out there or supposed yeah. murder machine, unreal type of reporting. Well, you know, the, the thing about that story is um, I had shared it with a lot of people, some very close people to me um, before it aired and just getting their advice on it. And, um, you know, they had all said to go that I should go forward. They were like, this is the right thing to do when it aired, though. Um, and there was such blowback and I was, you know, knocked off of, of social for a year and um, done with TV. That was, you know, kind of the end of that um, and started doing my own thing. But. I think there's been some of those people have come back to me and said, you know, I really believe one of these days, one of these days, um, you know, you'll be vindicated uh, for, for that reporting. The crazy thing is, you know, you flash forward and you see all the stuff that happened with Epstein and, and of course his client list never, never coming out. Um, but we, we know a lot of people who were connected with him and I was actually reporting on Epstein all the way back in 2013, 2014, right? No one was talking about Epstein back then. Um, and then uh, this thing with the Balenciaga you know, pedo stuff that's now come out, right? And what you start to see is once again, I think, you know, the thing about this story is who all was involved and where are the receipts? Getting the receipts is pretty difficult. Yeah. Um, I don't know, even know that we'll ever see that. But, you know, one of the things that's, that stood out in my mind uh, when I was re-watching on TikTok the other day and the story when it popped up um, was at the very end talking about Dennis Hasterit, right? And one of the names you never hear anymore, like no one talks about this guy. Dennis Hastert, if if you don't recognize that name, was the speaker, speaker of the, of the house, house. Yeah, right during the, during um, the late eighties, I believe, early nineties. Yep. Um, and he was the the speaker of the house, third most powerful person in the country, and he wound up being convicted for having lots and molested yeah. an enormous number of young boys when he was a wrestling coach so many that the judge at his sentencing referred to him as a serial child molester yeah and this guy is was close personal friends with john podesta running right? and- the, the the congress literally what was coming to the floor what was not coming to the floor yeah. everything 
it, yeah, it, it's not serial child molester. Yeah, great coincidence. Right, and I think that, you know the, the the main thing is this: if the question is, are there powerful people in our society who who seem to be fine with pedophilia or seem to at least be empathetic, whether they be in Hollywood or in fashion or in politics, who are connected? There's no question those connections are there. When you look at what was what has been going on with Twitter and these Twitter files, right? The fact that Elon Musk comes in and within a couple of days of being there, they shut down forty four thousand child porn. Uh, yeah, in pages. India alone. In India, yeah, in India, that's crazy, right? The, the the amount of pornography and child pornography allowed on Twitter until just a few months ago has been unbelievable. And the question becomes. You know, this, there's this lawsuit. We're running a piece on this next week. But that lawsuit that, that Twitter's facing from a kid who was 13 years old at the time that these, you know, child porn videos were taken of him. And, and years later, they started running on Twitter. And Twitter would not take them down. And the kid is, is suing them today, two John Doe's, suing them because they sent these requests to Twitter saying, I was 13 at the time. I was manipulated and blackmailed by someone pretending to be a 16-year-old girl. They got this, these, these images and videos of him, then talked him into including another kid. He was 13 at the time, talk, involving another kid in this. Then they started posting this stuff on Twitter years later. It got 167,000 views and over 2,000 retweets. And Twitter was saying, no, we're not taking it down because it doesn't violate our terms of service. You're like, how does it not violate your terms of service? It doesn't mean everyone in power is a pedophile. But what it does tell you is that there is something, whether it's Hollywood or politics, big tech, fashion, whatever it might be, there is a, a, a certain group of people that do seem to operate with impunity yeah. and, and who are protected by that class for whatever reason. Hmm. Yeah, it, it is. I don't think it's any coincidence. I think the, the more we're going to find out here, hopefully... Uh, over the coming months and coming years, you know, this, what I'll call a, a, a intelligence nuclear bomb that's going off mm -hmm. in slow motion, it is going to vaporize some people and it, you know, and it needs to happen. It's, it's needed to happen for a long time. Hopefully it leads to some, uh, some clarity with some of the other places as well. And we maybe, I don't know, maybe as Americans, maybe we'll see a little bit of justice in our lifetime. Um, I don't have very long with you left. There's we're about 58 minutes in. I want you to talk about sovereign media. Just, yeah. just you know, as as long as you want, it's it's, it's your stage, man. Um, <laughs> I appreciate everything that you've talked about so far, but this is uh, this is where you're going. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. You know, one of the things that we've been doing uh, for the last few years, really since 2017, and and long before a lot of what's happened in big tech happened, you you said at the beginning, you know, being able to see the matrix. I, I do think that that is a gifting that I have, that I can really see things in advance. Um, and so years ago, I started talking to my team, and we said we need to start developing a way to to fight censorship because we're we're going to see a purge. And sure enough, that purge came, um, and. There are others who have popped up and created, you know, platforms and said, hey, here we go. You know, we're creating other stuff and, and uh, you know, you should jump on board with us. And we were not the first ones out the gate, even though I saw it in the distance. We were not the first ones to pop up like a parlor did. But the reason we weren't was because we were trying to figure out technologically, how do you survive? Right. How do you build something that cannot be taken down? And that's what we're doing. So yeah. we've launched it. S-O-V-R-E-N dot media is the platform. I will we're, make we're, all the links and everything in the do. show notes. Absolutely. Please do. Yeah. And, and so what we're doing is we're bringing over content creators, but we're still in our process right now about to launch live streaming on there. But everything we're doing, we're building outside of 
big tech. We're building everything to web three. And so mm -hmm. the idea is to create a system that cannot be censored, cannot be taken down. There's no FBI agents or CIA agents in the background. But more importantly, you know, if, if the FBI and CIA were not inside Twitter, the question is, would Twitter exist or would it have been taken down years ago? <laughs> if Facebook were not co-opted by CIA, I actually did a report a few weeks ago about before all the Twitter file stuff about the CIA involvement in, in Facebook and how many high ranking uh, VPs at Facebook who were in charge of censorship, trust and safety all used to work for the That's NSA right. and the CIA. It's insane. If they, if that were not the case, would those platforms exist, or would we find that a few companies like AWS, the backbone of the internet, or Google, are actually shutting down access to those platforms? I believe that would be the case. The mm. only reason those platforms are so much in your face is because part of their agreement in order to exist is to say we're going to hand over control to these agencies, and the agencies come in and they take control. Um, they're too much of a threat otherwise. So the only way you can deal with that is you can't build the way Silicon Valley builds. You have to build in a way that allows for um, pure and complete peer-to-peer -peer control. Our company, one thing that makes us super unique is that in the future, we're actually becoming a DAO. So we're set up right now um, in a way so that, you know, we have a, a typical corporate structure right mm -hmm. now. We are transitioning to a DAO, which is a decentralized autonomous organization, which means that in the future, there is no owner of this company. There is no one who will have control other than the users themselves who will actually own it, control it, and have voting power in it. I actually believe that that's what Elon Musk, if it weren't a publicly traded company, should be doing with Twitter. He should turn it into a DAO and give it to its users. Uh, he's not going to be able to do that because it is a publicly traded company. But if you're not a publicly traded company, if you are a unique entity like we are, you can build yourself in such a way that you protect your users and you protect this idea of speech using technology rather than allowing technology to be used to control speech and to control thought it's it's the way of the future and i've i've heard about all the the really big brains especially in bitcoin and decentralization DeFi, and the rest of these guys definitely going that way this is you know decentralization and the ability to uh to own your content to to make sure that you have the keys to it the the, the transaction uh whether we're building on layers or whatever it's going to be is is absolutely going to throw a wrench in these guys and you're going to have to there's a lot of people that are going to have to choose what do you want to do and to your point i think you're probably exactly right is uh the Facebook, Twitter, and the rest of these organizations that are in our face are not only in our face, but they are here because they want them here. And you know, to, we were talking a little bit earlier about uh, you know the ability of these guys to listen uh, to uh, Alawaki and you know his you know his people. And that's the thing is like during that 2010 time frame, um, what you saw was a migration of what they did back in the 1940s to the Japanese. They took the Japanese and they said, hey, you guys are all going to these concentration camps. Now they don't need concentration camps. They can listen. They can see. They can absolutely form algorithms around what you are, who you hang out with, and, and predict what you're doing. And so, you know, word of the wise out there, uh, you got to learn. Uh, it's time to adapt, people. And I got to tell you, uh, Sovereign uh, media is probably one of those places where you're going to get a lot of return for the time that you invest into learning it. But, uh, Ben, any, any parting thoughts, man, uh, before we get out of here, where can we support you? 
Well, that's the main place. Go there, create an account, um, you know, and check out what we're doing there and then spread the word about it. If you know of great content creators, like, I don't know, like, uh, you know, Shane Hazel, and you say, hey, they need to be over at Sovereign, you encourage them to take their content there. Listen, what one thing that we've never tried to do is we're not trying to create um, exclusivity where you can't, you know, see it anyplace else. What we want to do is create a, a, a support for creators where when you bring your content over and you put it there, you know, listen, I, I was on YouTube. I, I mentioned it from the early days doing news, right? Um, a year ago, maybe a little more than that now, YouTube deleted my channel, right? Because I, I cited CDC statistics about the effects of mask wearing on children. Yeah. It sucks to be removed, but mostly because when that happens, 10 years worth of video content, half a billion video views, poof. Gone you know, gone into the air and, and YouTube says you're never allowed back and you'll never see this stuff again. And so it's like, what, what did I invest there? I spent yeah. 10 years of my life building basically my, my, my home on someone else's property, someone else's land. And then they come along and say, Hey, you know what? Forget it. You're out of here. And that's one thing that not only never happens with us, but because of the way we're building it, you as the owner of your content, own the keys to it, own the access to it. It's, it's actually yours. So that's our goal is to create a space where, where, um, the investment to the your point you made a minute ago, Shane, the investment of your time and your energy into building what you're building, your property, it belongs to you. That's how we see it. Ladies and gents, uh, I got to tell you, I this is one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. I thought it might be a little heavy right before Christmas. Ben, I appreciate you making <laughs> it light and humorous and such a good story, man. Uh, I look forward to talking to you in the future. Um, thank you for your time. Thank you for everything you're doing out there. And I can't wait to see what the, the next chapter is uh, in, the, in, in your big move. But uh, we'll save that one for next time. Ladies and gents, go out there, support Ben, everything he does. Uh, and have a very, very, very Merry Christmas uh, or whatever you celebrate. Uh, until next time, I love you. I need you. Peace. Um, don't hurt people and don't take this back.